welcome to episode 96 of Yukon 360. That is the only podcast in the entire galaxy, nay, the universe that covers the University of Connecticut from every single angle. My name is Tom Breen. I am coming to you today from Manchester, Connecticut, and joining me as always is my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm here in Weathersfield. We're getting long in the tooth, Tom. 96 episodes. 96 coming up on the big 100. I'm so excited for you know the it. big 100. Yes, dear listener, if we could if we could invite you all to cake for the 100th anniversary, we would. <laughs> but we we can't. There's no such thing as virtual cake. But we have a great uh show this week. We've got a fascinating guest to talk about some uh, issues of burning importance in the news. But before we do that, let's talk about some some headlines. What's happening at UConn lately? Julie, what's going on? We've got a new class of distinguished professors. So the Board of Trustees every year bestows this honor upon professors who excel in all three areas of research, teaching, and public engagement, the three kind of spokes of the wheel of being a UConn professor, if you will. And those are Lorinda Jaffe, who's professor and chair of the Department of Cell Biology in the School of Medicine. Rachel O'Neill, a professor in the Departments of Molecular and Cell Biology and Genetics and Genome Sciences in CLAS and the School of Medicine. And Professor O'Neill is also the director of the Institute for Systems Genomics. And Richard Pomp, the Alva P. Loisel professor in the School of Law. So you can read all about them as usual on UConn today, but congratulations to those three professors. Yeah, that's awesome. I have some sad news. Michael Zakea, who is the founder and director of the Entrepreneurship Bootcamp for Veterans, uh, passed away. There's a moving tribute to him on, on UConn today. He was a really impressive uh, person. He's a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps who established the Entrepreneurship Boot Camp for Veterans to help his fellow vets get a leg up in, in civilian life. And uh, since it was founded in 2009, it's actually produced 187 businesses here in Connecticut, employing almost 500 people. So he really made a big impact and, and was, was very well liked. And it's just a, a very sad loss. That is very sad. I had seen that story, which was very good. And I don't know that I knew him, but he looks very familiar to me. I don't know if I've just seen him at, you know, union events or something. Yeah, or you, you might have known him because you got your your MBA and he was very active in the yeah, school business. So you might have been at some event. Maybe. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very sad though. All right. Why don't we get to our guest this week? This is a very interesting conversation, I think. And this person is a very distinguished professor. He's someone I've known for a while at UConn. And as I say in the introduction to the clip that you'll hear, he's an excellent follow on Twitter. But a Preston Green, Professor Preston Green is an expert on educational law. Uh, and urban education, uh, school choice, and things like that. These are all very hot topics in the news. I give a little more detail about his background and the, the, the interview. Let's let's just jump into that. Joining me today is Preston Green. He's the John and Maria Niag Professor of Urban Education and the Professor of Educational Leadership and Law at the Niag School of Education here at UConn. He's a nationally recognized expert on all things education, but particularly school choice and educational law. And he's an excellent follow on Twitter.com. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Thank you for being with us, Professor Green. Obviously, education right now is a um, it's a very placid and tranquil issue that nobody seems to be talking about nationally. But I think there are a few issues we could probably explore. One in particular I wanted to start off with is I know one you've written about. This is a case before the Supreme Court regarding a main rule that bars religious private schools from uh, participating in the voucher program. And so I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the questions that might be addressed here is if a state yeah, the, the courts as a state is not allowed to keep religious schools out of its voucher program. Could states keep religious schools out of charter school programs? Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And 
this is something that many of us who are who write and study um, legal issues in education are paying great attention to, because vouchers are certainly important. There are hundreds of thousands of people in vouchers programs, but really, it's charter schools where major changes in school choice can really occur. The major issue that we're paying attention to is how the court treats the religious use religious status distinction. And in a number of cases leading up to this case, the Supreme Court, while opening up voucher programs to religious institutions, has stated that while religious status restrictions are unconstitutional, religious use restrictions may still be constitutional. But in the Macon case, the court has signaled that it may weaken the religious use restriction or do it away with it altogether. And this is important for charter schools because what may happen is that charter schools are defined as public, but they have a number of private attributes. So charter schools are found to be private and the Supreme Court may actually do that in the near future. Then what may happen then is that this religious use restriction the no longer there would open up the possibility for religious charter schools because, you know, because of charter school, if it's a case where you're contracting out services to religious institutions and you cannot restrict them, then that opens up the avenue possibly for charter schools. And that is a big deal because that means that if religious institutions then can operate charter schools, then they cannot be restricted in terms of how they operate and in terms of what they teach. So this may have implications for LGBTQ discrimination, for instance, or teaching of religion in schools. We are really on the cusp possibly of a major sea change in education. And I don't think people are truly aware of that. Yeah. And I know that you've researched and written extensively about charter schools, and there's been so much political back and forth about charter schools. The previous presidential administration seemed very favorable towards them. Where are we right now with that industry? I mean, are charter schools growing across the country? Are they standing still? They have grown, and partly due to the pandemic. They've grown really about a percentage point since the start of the pandemic, in part because parents are looking for educational options beyond traditional public schools. So charter schools have indeed grown, but that seven percentage number is also very misleading because um, like what I write a lot about is about urban, like charter schools and urban school districts or urban communities. And in those communities, uh, charter schools actually are even more popular. So you could have charter concentrations anywhere from 30 to 40% in urban communities. And so I spent a lot of time writing and researching this. And this is where I think the major changes that we're seeing in education can also have a major impact. It certainly can have an impact on public education in general, but really in these communities, there could be an even greater impact as you see more choice options coming in to these communities. And what I write a lot about and what I'm very concerned about is the need for greater regulatory provisions to protect against harm and misuse of public funds that could impact these communities, many of whom are already underfunded. And so the failure to provide this oversight could cause greater harm in those communities. 
in the last you know year, maybe 18 months, there's been a lot of controversy around the country on schools and what schools teach. You know, we had in 2021, we had the, the kind of fights about, you know, so-called critical race theory. And now there's the sort of like Florida has that bill about LGBT sort of restricting what can be taught about sexuality. Where's this coming from? Why so much focus on curriculum issues now? Now, I'm not an educational historian, but I do read a lot of history. This is an ongoing battle. This has been going on for more than 100 years. If you look at um, some of the discussions over over that period, there has been a focus in the religious right to, you know, pushing against public education, private education, and saying that um, really that the solution to the problems that we face are more Christian schools. So this is really just the latest iteration of this battle. It's just that because of the pandemic, I think that people who want these changes see a window of opportunity that they're really pushing for. I think another big difference here is that this is that the courts are also showing that they're much more amenable possibly to these changes than they have been in the past. So I think that while there has been this you know hundred year period where we're seeing you know these debates, the big change right now is the courts. You know, the big change right now is the courts and that they may green light some of these changes that maybe in the past would not have happened. So the, the legal landscape for schools really is shifting pretty quickly. Is that right? Yes, it is. It is. And I think that people do not realize that that is going on and that the courts are making major, major changes that are going to have an impact on how our school systems are operated. You know, I've heard it said that schools are such a, a, a fraught issue for people because it's it's the one area where most people will have the most contact with the government in some form, right? That mm-hmm. this is a, a big part of their lives and this will be a big part of their you know children's lives and so forth. What do people ultimately want from their schools? I mean, is it is it simple uh, or is it sort of d- depends on the community and depends on the person? You know, it really does depend on the community, I think, that I've been researching kind of like And this actually goes to where where a lot of my research is now going, I think, in that looking at kind of like how white communities and how Black and Latinx communities view public education and view schools. And I think that you do see that, generally speaking, that white parents are, are pretty happy with their education. You know, they're very happy with their education. And I suspect that once the pandemic has you know, once it has slowed down and once we're out of this issue, that there may be much more support for public schooling. In contrast, in Black and in some cases Latinx communities, there has been not so much support or I think a great deal more criticism of public education, in part because of historic underfunding, lack of like comparative resources. And so I think that because of this, because of this dissatisfaction, you do see, I think, a different viewpoint about this. So I think that when I answer this question, it really does depend on the community. But because of these differences, it may, I think, have an impact on the ability of communities to get together to find support for public education. Um, I think that in many cases, people are speaking different languages. You have people saying, well, we need to support public schooling. We need to do this, but then you have people in urban areas saying, "Well, we're not getting supported as it is." And so I think that really going, this is an opportunity. I think I hope for some interest convergence where 
those folks who support public education, you know, who are more well-resourced, understand the issues that are facing under-resourced communities, and if they want to support public education, find ways that they can talk to each other and support each other so that the public school system can better serve all. That brings up uh, something I've been thinking about. It's been almost 70 years since Brown versus Board of Education. Is that right? Yes. How have we done as a country in, in making sure that children have equal access to a good education? It's an ongoing struggle. It is, it is definitely an ongoing struggle because, you know, there was a window where you had greater desegregation, where you had certainly were resources that Black, certainly Black communities did not have access to. They, they now did. But the Supreme Court then retracted from that. And so that window really has, to some extent, closed. It's certainly not as open as it had been. But in addition... I think that there is a funding component to this that we paid less. I mean, we certainly paid some attention to, but I think that really had not been addressed in the same way. And so the kind of funding disparities that had been in place even before Brown have been allowed to remain. And, and these disparities have been baked into the cake. So I think that really 70 years after Brown versus Board of Education, we do have an instance where white and non-white communities are inequitably funded. In fact, there was a study done by the um, nonprofit entity EdBuild that found that in 2016, I believe, non-white communities had about $23 billion less money in terms of funding. And these are equal numbers of students between white students and and non-white students. And I'm using that term a little bit broadly here. But that amounted to about $2,000, about $2,200 per student, a difference between white and non-white. And when you controlled for wealth, that number went down to $1,500 per student, which is still very significant. And so that just shows you really that these disparities have been consistent. They've been ongoing. And this is something that we have struggled with, and it seems that we'll continue to struggle with. Pulling back from the national perspective a little bit, I know that people uh, in the North often like to think of segregation, the legacy of segregation is like a Southern issue. But here in Connecticut, you know, we have uh, the Sheffers O'Neill case, which found de facto segregation in Connecticut schools. And you know, it seems that because the property tax is such an important part of how schools are funded in Connecticut, it seems like we really haven't solved those issues. I mean, when you talk about school funding, is this is this something that can be easily addressed? Is there a national solution for this, or does this have to be state by state? I think it has to be both. I think it has to be both. I think at the state level, many of these problems occur because of the unwillingness really to deal with differences in property taxation between, and certainly in Connecticut, between communities and Black and Latinx communities. And You know, the mechanisms are in place, even in a place like Connecticut, where in addition to local property taxation, school funding formulas also provide for state aid that could go to these communities and make up that difference. And it just has not happened. It just really hasn't happened. So that really does need to happen at the state level. I'm, I'm zeroing in on Connecticut since you asked me about this, but this is definitely an issue that other states also face. In addition to this, the federal government does need to be involved in this as well. 
Because there are steps that the federal government can take. Again, a lot of my research is on racial funding disparities. The federal government has not really tackled funding disparities that have been race-based or can be traced racially. The federal government has also had a role in this really through redlining back in the 1930s, which was the separation of white and black communities through these racial covenants. And then through the federal government then providing mortgages to those white communities without providing similar funding and resources to black communities. So the federal government also plays a role in this and that it really needs to help to dismantle or address these multi-generational disparities that it helped to create. It has tools by which it can help force states or compel states to undo the funding disparities that are created by their school funding formulas. So the short answer to your question is that both the state and federal governments can play a role in in undoing these funding disparities. A lot of it probably comes down to the political will to do that. Right. It does come down to the political will, and we just haven't had it. I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, there's always been these inflection points when we start paying attention to this. There was a Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement. Now, after George Floyd, this was another window where we could pay attention to this. There's certainly a great deal of pushback right now. You know, even though I can be very skeptical at times, I always try to have hope. And I always try to to help find ways, at least, you know, in my perch as an academic to do research on these issues and help make suggestions for how to address them. So, yeah, I think the political will is always an issue, but we still fight because we just have to. This might be uh, an unfair question, but if, if you had a magic wand and you could make one change to educational policy or law in the country, well, I, that's a, first of all, it's a weird magic wand, but if you could... What would you uh, what would you change? My magic wand would be resources for communities. Uh, my magic wand would be resources for communities to provide for the needs that they have. And I think that if you have those resources in those communities, then I mean all of them, then then it becomes a situation where you know, there's a natural attraction. People may actually go across school districts looking for the things that are of interest to them. But even if, even if that doesn't happen, I think that having the funding, having the resources in a way that you don't have to really battle to try to, you know, get into other school districts, I think that would go a long way to give empowerment to communities to do the things that they need to provide education for their needs. I think that's great. Well, uh, if if uh, folks want to follow you on uh, Twitter, how can they do that? My Twitter handle is Dr. Preston Green. And just come all, come one and come all. I tweet a lot about educational law and policy. That's a big area of, of interest of mine. I'm also an avid hiker. So you'll see the occasional picture of me hiking, um, my wife and myself hiking, also sports as well. It's another interest. But if you're looking for discourse on educational law and policy, you can find that in my Twitter handle. Fantastic. And uh, when the Supreme Court uh, decision does come down, I hope we can get back in touch and get your thoughts on, on what it means. I'll be right here. Looking forward to it. Great. Thank you so much, Professor. You're welcome. And thank you. Yeah, so that was interesting. And a lot to watch for with the Supreme Court in cases like that. Schools seem like they're a very big big topic in American politics. I guess they probably Absolutely. always are, but, yeah. but lately especially. Good job, Tom. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, you know. I can occasionally do things right. Occasionally. Occasionally. We did have a scare. We thought we 
We thought we lost the audio to that. Yeah, it was that uh, interview. This time of year is very busy for faculty and Professor Green is, is very busy. So after recording that, I uh, went to play it back and I heard nothing. And I just thought, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it was a, it was a shared heart dropping out of our chest experience. But yeah. thankfully, I played it just fine. So we're all set. So there you go. That's you that's how, it, Tom. a little glimpse at how the sausage gets made. It was like, geez, I let Tom handle this and he can't See? even get it. <laughs> it's a big mistake. Don't ever <laughs> let me handle things that are important. I can handle the introduction. That's about it. And even then. You did a fantastic job. So let's uh, let's go sit on Tom's history shelf briefly. I was trying uh, to think of what we were going to say for that today. Let, let's, uh, let's set the Wayback Machine all the way to Friday, the 5th of May, 1927, just as Today in 2022, that is the last issue of the Daily Campus for the semester. That's the special senior number, as they called it. This is something they don't do anymore because, well, because we have thousands and thousands of of graduates. But back then, they gave every single graduating senior a questionnaire, different things to answer with kind of like superlatives and what you liked about, at the time, Connecticut Agricultural College. And uh, so this issue uh, is devoted to the the answers to the questionnaire, or as the headline says, seniors spill the dope in answering the questionnaire. That's a word that has changed slang meaning quite a bit over yes. the past nearly 100 years. Yes. Seniors are brought under the spotlight, which at times produces a burning effect. Diversity among individual answers to questions is marked. Who's who contest creates interest in student body. Courses are attacked. <laughs> <laughs> Military science is upheld. Men would limit athletics. And the naughty generation considers smoking, drinking, and petting. Controversial stuff. There's also some some superlatives, you know, like most popular, best athlete. Some of them are, are a little a little cruel. Laziest goes out to Joseph Connors and Rosemary uh, Brule. Most conceited, <laughs> Nelson Hoadley and Francis Hopkins. Nelson Hoadley sounds like he might be a little full. Might be a little conceited. The biggest heartbreaker, L. Richard Belden and a tie, Dorothy Hughes and Mary A. Cooper. Are there pictures? There are. I need to see these people, these heartbreakers. Some of these uh, other categories include social lion, biggest drag with faculty, biggest drag with co-eds, most considerate, most bashful and neatest. And then things, oh, most likely to succeed. L. Richard Belden, again, the big heartbreaker and Sally Kroll. uh, Does uh, drag mean what like it means now? Like, yeah, I think like like, drag. Yeah, exactly. Wet blanket kind of. I think so. Who uh, was most popular? Was there most popular? Yeah, most popular was John Daly and Dorothy Hughes. Dorothy Hughes sounds like she's popular. She's named a few times in this. She's, she's also best looking. Wow. Yep. Are there pictures of them? There are pictures. Let's see. There's, yep, there's a picture of Dorothy Hughes. She looks very uh, distinguished. Please post uh, them on Twitter. I will, post, I will post the pictures. And then they, they go into detail. And it's a lot of fun as they they kind of explain, you know, the, the the thinking behind why these people were voted. So John Breitweiser and Randy Wapples shore the high dignity of being most serious, which doubtless accounts for their permitted exodus at mid-years with sufficient credits to allow them a vacation until June. Whoa. You yeah. could just leave in the middle of the semester? I guess. You're done? I guess. That's not how it works anymore. No, it's not. It's definitely not. Unless those are more kind of like December graduates. They just didn't do that then. Oh, that's probably true. That's kind of what that sounds like. Now that um, I think of it. Now I, I want to find out what these people, like what the most likely to succeed did. Yeah. What did they do? L. Richard. What was his name? L. Richard Belden. Belden. 
Belden. Yeah, and there it's a it's a really fun issue, and they they also gave their oh uh, we have hold on Tom we have a hall named for L Richard Belden. Oh, do we? Yeah. Wow. So he was uh, a successful. He was somebody. It's a uh, Belden Eddie. Is that alumni? Yeah, alumni quadrangle. Wow. What did he do? They talk about some of the issues of the day. Yeah, I was going to say there's got to be some like risque stuff in here. What's like the like what are they what are they griping about? What were their problems with the universe? <clears throat> that awful generation is the uh, subhead. Seven men said no when asked if they had indulged in petting parties. The rest of the men, however, told the truth and said yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, big, petting the- parties. The big surprise comes when it is found that 15 women do not practice the ancient art. Ten women answered in the affirmative, and it is assumed by some they must be experts when so great a proportion of their fellow classmates admit their failing. Uh, There's stuff about the debate over the uh, ROTC, which is a hot issue in those days. Anything else fun in that one? It's The whole thing is worth reading. I'll post a link to it. You know, it's it's just kind of neat to see uh, how people responded to the issues of the day and, and kind of what they talked about in, in classes, what their amusements were. Interesting, genetics was the most popular course listed by both men and women. What I always um, like about things like this is that for some reason, I, and I dare say most people in my generation, I feel like we think that back then people were more like, for lack of a better word, prudish. And I guess they were in public, but like when you hear them saying these things about petting parties <laughs> yeah it's like oh no like college students were always college students that is true sense. yeah um yeah football and dramatics led as the men's favorite activity on campus while athletics walking and swimming found most favor with the women such activities as sleeping bumming rides and petting received serious consideration by both groups it is interesting to note that while no man judged eating as a favorite activity three women found it such <laughs> and then they were shamed for the rest of eternity by society for liking eating <laughs> i could never say they liked eating ever again most most popular actors include douglas fairbanks john barrymore clara bow miss clara bow and huh, rudy billup and jake ahern i've heard of some of them is john barrymore yes the, related to uh, drew barrymore is maybe. he the bad guy from uh it's a wonderful life yes or is yes. that that's John Barrymore or Lionel. It's either John or Lionel. They were Lionel, brothers. I think. It might be Lionel. Yeah. I think it's Lionel. The famous Barrymore acting family. Good times. 1926. Seven? Seven. It was Seven. uh yeah, it was a good, a good, interesting time on campus when, you know, the senior poll you know consisted of like 30 people. <laughs> could ask all these questions of and it's a lot of fun. We'll post some pictures so you can you can get a look at uh at the 1920s hotties. Richard Belden and Dorothy Hughes, or Dot Hughes, as she's called in the text. Yeah, so that's it. That's a little, little stroll down memory lane with the old Connecticut campus special senior number from May 5th, 1927. Our commencement is about to begin as you're listening to this. It'll start this weekend, and, and we have 17 ceremonies. Wow. Which is, I think, the most ever because CLAS is doing three this three year. Three this year, right. Yeah. That's big. So, you know, it's the, the highlight of our year as a university. There's a really neat website about the class of 2022 that you should take a look at. You can find it on today.uconn.edu. You can also find us on Twitter uh, at UConn Podcast, at TJ Breen. Julie, is there anything you want to plug for the good people? At Julie Bartuka. Go read those commencement stories. I'm going to read some of them myself today. It's good stuff, everybody. And thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks, you know, and remember... If you were voted most likely to succeed in your college class and there's not a building named after you, you are a failure.